Hello and welcome to episode 19 of the Social Trifle Association podcast. As always, this is your host, Alex Humva, and I am returned straight from the battlefield by Faye, who, who has been out conquering, uh, conquering things and fighting Nazis, I'm, I'm told, I'm hearing from the front lines. I've very scattered information over there, but, uh, very valiant efforts, I'm sure, are being, being had out there. Um, so yes, she has taken a moment from, uh, I, I believe frying bacon to come here and, uh, talk on the podcast for a little bit. And this has gone on too long now. Yeah. Glad to be back, Alex. It's a real hawk fest out here. We have returned from the hiatus. Um, Suffice to say, I have been inundated with just absolute insanity amounts of stuff. Uh, the SRA has uh, really picked up at the end of the year. We've we've had quite a few things going on behind the scenes. I've been busy cranking out member cards, um, getting merchandise fulfilled, and other such things. I was, of course, at the Marxist Center. Uh, episode 18 will be coming out concurrent with this one. So you'll, you'll have a bit of a blast from the past with that one. Um, so it is not a totally missing episode, but it is definitely a little bit out of date now, but it, it will keep be coming out for your listening pleasure alongside this one. But yes, we are, we are now here in the modern day or in the year of our Lord 2018. Um, and things are going a little bit better. Things are slowing down a little bit on my end. I hope to finish the year out. Um, you know, as, as some of you may be aware, I do receive a, a wage now for some of my work with the uh, SRA as it relates to my role as an officer, um, yeah, particularly with making cards and such. And, but because, you know, the end of the year is coming, things need to settle down, I'll probably be taking a break from that and my officer duties in general in the SRA, and I will be uh, focusing more on my personal projects, such as this podcast. So I'm hoping to start cranking out some new podcast material, some special episodes to make up for the gap that my Patreons have uh, been experiencing. I definitely want to get some special episodes out to make sure that uh, you all have have a good good experience and getting your money's worth when you're contributing to that. So uh, this episode will be a little bit uh, differently structured. We've got a few stories to hit upon real fast, and then we are going to go into some member questions. I threw it out there in the Slack earlier, asking folks what they they want to have asked, and I'll probably run a more general Q&A uh, on my social media at another date to maybe put up for the Patreon supporters or such. Um, but yes, uh, let's let's get right into the night uh, we'll, we'll start it off with an easy one, uh, before moving into some more depressing topics. Uh, Mayor Rahm Emanuel from the Chicago, uh, he has a interesting solution to the city's pending pension crisis. Uh, he is proposing that the city legalize marijuana and start a casino. So, the you know, the classic strategy of we're out of money. So it's time to start indulging in people's vices to uh, to make some monies. And, you know, I, I have no problem with this. I, I'm not the biggest fan of casinos, but certainly uh, not not banning weed would be neat. And I'm sure the 
maybe the city could collect some tax money on that. I'm not exactly sure that's going to solve the pension problem, um, but uh, it, it, it's worth a shot. Yeah, I guess, you know, I have no problem. I mean, legalizing weed is a very good thing, especially in Chicago, where drug laws are used um, and enforced so heavily against the black community, contributing to rates of violence there. Um, You know, you can talk about the sort of uh, gentrification of weed by white entrepreneurs, but on the whole, I think, you know, legalizing and taxing weed, probably a net benefit. And, you know, maybe they can put that tax money to some good use. Casinos, ah little uh i'm not a huge fan uh a casino is essentially and gambling in general and lotteries and all these sorts of you know chance-based games mostly serve as a tax on the poor and middle class um you know rich people they might go to casinos they might spend a lot of money at a casino but overall it's a much smaller fraction of their overall wealth versus someone who's poor and might put their last 20 dollars into a slot machine and get bupkis out of it so uh you know, in, in a way, a casino is really just a re- sort of a regressive tax. It's optional. Obviously, not everyone has to go to the casino, but the people who do go tend to be uh, poorer. So not a fan of that. Weed good, casinos bad. Eh, it's a wash in my eyes. You know, cities, you know, they'll do they'll do anything they can to balance their budget as long as it doesn't involve uh, taxing the uh, politicians, major donors. Oh, yes, I'd like to quote from this article from the Chicago Tribune, uh, quoting, What won't work, Emanuel said, is the tax-the-wealthy mindset embraced by the ascendant progressive wing of the Democratic Party that could take an increasingly central role in charting the city's future after he steps down. Quoting him here, Now there may be some bitter reticence, and I get it, he said, but to my friends in the progressive circles, don't just think you're going to tax the healthy as a way to grow the economy. You're going to cut jobs doing that. As obviously when you start taxing rich people's paychecks, um, it it somehow then, uh, you know, breaks the economy, even though that money has already been dispersed to them in the form of wages, dividends, um, other such things, and it's uh, I don't know I, I don't want to get into this whole economic debate but a local uh, a local company here in California's uh, inland Empire um, a holster manufacturer actually I won't name them specifically actually what the hell uh, Safari land um, they used their um, they used their uh, their you know tax savings from Trump's uh, tax bill they used that money to buy a factory in Florida and laid off 150 employees and shut down all of their manufacturing uh, facilities in California. And the new factory in Florida employs about a third as many workers. So in reality, sometimes giving large corporations tax breaks actually results in fewer jobs. Huh? Who, Who would have thought that corporations would rather invest more in capital than in expanding their workforce? You know, this whole sort of, you know, oh, don't tax the wealthy or we're going to lose jobs is just the same sort of trickle down, you know, Reaganomics, voodoo economics sort of bullshit that we've been hearing from the right for literally decades, almost, you know, probably over a century. And it's bullshit. There's no substance to it. 
you know, giving tax breaks to corporations does not create jobs. It does not create jobs, certainly not in the long term. And uh, yeah, uh, making, you know, wealthy individuals and very large corporations pay an extra few percent in tax is not going to crash the economy. And if it does crash the economy, if it does cause businesses to pack up and move, then maybe we should consider the fundamentals of an economic system that gives major corporations more power over society than the governments that are supposed to rule them. Yep. It's, I don't know. Obviously taxing the rich, not a permanent solution, but certainly a good step on the, the, the stepping stair of getting to where we need to go. It's encouraging to see folks like, Rahm Emanuel, you know, starting to fade into irrelevance uh, in the Democratic Party at the same time. I, I do wonder how much of this progressive wave that the, the news media has been touting is truly that. Um, but we'll see. We'll see. I think uh, it sounds like, I mean, he's a way, lame duck mayor. So who knows how much he's actually going to be able to get through. Um, I will say to his credit, he does not appear to be supporting cutting the pensions at all. He might have some uh, odd ideas of resolving the issue, but he, he is definitely supportive of keeping uh, the, uh, an amendment to the Illinois Constitution, as the Illinois Constitution actually guarantees in it that pensions may never be uh, infringed upon, which is somewhat unique for a state government. So, so this is a thing that in the private sector, if a company goes and plunders the pension fund, uh, you can face criminal charges for that. Uh, if you intentionally go and plunder the pension fund to for purposes not related to the pension, uh, you you can go to jail for fraud for that and embezzlement. Um, whereas the state governments, uh, because they're the government and they make the rules. Uh, most state governments do not have this in place. So, for instance, here in Kansas, uh, you can steal from the pension fund all day long. And Kansas solved this by simply making its state workers uh, pay more into the pension fund when the pension couldn't could it wasn't sustainable. After you know the state government caused the problem, they they just then turned around and told state workers that they needed to contribute. A larger mandatory contribution to the pension fund from their paychecks. So, yeah, uh, but Illinois has a specific provision in their constitution against it, and there's an amendment uh, on the table to get rid of that provision. And it looks like uh, Ron is not looking at taking that away. He is supportive of the current language. So that at least he's got something going for him there, even if he's wanted to solve it by starting a casino. Not sure if... Uh, well, you know, with the track record of Illinois politicians, he's probably going to be going to jail for something eventually. So I guess we just have to wait and see. This is true. So, um, another story to touch upon, and, and Faye's probably a little bit more knowledgeable uh, on this, uh, that I've actually kind of been, you know, in this bubble as I you know, make cards and go to sleep and generally have my body shut down on me because I, I've been doing too much, too much. 
Um, we have a story uh, to discuss, and it's, it's it's a story, that's for sure. So if you want to take this one, Faye. Yes. So as everyone should be aware, um, on August 11th, 2017, the Unite the Right rally occurred in Charlottesville, Virginia. Um, a large clash between uh, far-right, alt-right, white supremacist, and fascist uh, protesters and a large number of anti-fascist, anti-racist, socialist, anarchist, and progressive liberal counter-protesters. There was a great deal of uh, street violence. Um, Guns were fired. Uh, People were beat up. People were, you know, assaulted. Uh, There were makeshift flamethrowers. There were rocks thrown. There were people with shields and clubs. And towards the end of that day, um, around, I believe, uh, one, one or two o'clock local time, a individual in a gray Dodge Charger rammed his crowd, sorry, rammed his vehicle into a crowd of counter-protesters, injuring over 20 people and killing liberal counter-protester Heather Heyer. The driver of this vehicle, James Alex Field, was arrested peacefully by the police and uh, has spent the intervening time in jail as charges have been levied against him and the case against him has been built. And in the past week, his trial was conducted in Charlottesville. And uh, uh, I I don't want to go into all of the details of the trial. I would rather point you to local journalist Molly, who goes by Socialist Dog Mom on Twitter. Um, she's a local um, you know, citizen journalist who records who was present at charlottesville uh during the unite the right rally um she has covered every aspect of the case as it has proceeded she reports on local politics in uh in the city of charlottesville and she was present during the trial and recorded a uh, podcast and um transcripts of that podcast uh describing the events of the trial the you know the case of the prosecution and the defense which claimed self-defense or panic or something uh i would definitely encourage you to visit her twitter page and um and look at her reporting there because she did an excellent job of going over that but uh, at the conclusion of that trial uh james alex field was found guilty of murder in the first degree as well as several charges of malicious wounding and assault and he was sentenced to 419 years in prison and a fine of nearly half a million dollars. Um, he uh, Currently, the judge still has the option to reduce that sentence, but it seems unlikely that he will. Um, the sentence levied in, was pretty much the highest, uh, you know, the highest allowable sentence under Virginia law for the crimes of which he was convicted. And it is uh, quite certain that James Alex Field will spend the rest of his life in prison. Um, additionally, there is still a pending federal case against him for federal hate crimes over 30 counts. Uh, this trial will be proceeding uh, sometime in spring of 2019. This will um, very likely add a great deal of additional time to his sentence. He could be looking at a theoretical sentence of over 1,000 years in prison. And uh, he certainly deserves it. 
I'd like to add on there that amongst his federal charges, um, he also stands, uh, I'm trying to find a specific charge here, but uh, I'm reading an article here that says amongst his federal charges, uh, some of them do carry the death penalty, which is still an option at the federal level. Yes, I'm not, I can't say that I'm a fan of the death penalty, um, you know, I sort of, I sort of have, I guess as a socialist, my feeling on the death penalty is that um, some people deserve to die, but that the bourgeois state uh, is not a legitimate vehicle for judging who deserves that death. In any case, uh, James Alex Field, um, the alt-right has been spreading conspiracy theories, lauding him as a hero. Um you know, some of the various conspiracy theories are that Heather Heyer uh, did not die from the accident, but that she was simply near it and had a heart attack because she was overweight and she's, oh, she was just, just a disgusting theory um, based on a malicious misreading of the coroner's report, which is that she died of heart failure, um, neglecting the alt-right, neglecting to mention that the heart failure was caused by the severance of her carotid artery by the impact. Um, there are various conspiracy theories that uh, James Alex Fields, he, he was being attacked. He was being surrounded by Antifa protesters with with uh, with clubs and AR-15s. And this is completely false. There is picture and video evidence showing that James Alex Fields' uh, vehicle was um, in an area that was completely deserted prior to the attack, that there was no money threatening him, that he sat at the end of the street for over a minute with nobody within 50 feet of his vehicle, and uh, only a couple of people within even a hundred feet of it. Um, he sat idling for over a minute and then charged directly into the crowd. They tried to claim that he braked before hitting the crowd. Again, video evidence completely uh, counter countermands this. Completely disproves it. The alt right. Obviously, the truth does not matter to fascists. They're willing to distort facts. Can completely invent facts to justify their hatred, to justify their uh, sense of persecution. Um, but in reality, there is no justification for James Alex Field's attack. It was completely malicious. He rammed his car with intent to kill, to cause bodily harm. And if there had not been another car ahead of him, obscured by the crowd, um, if that street had been filled with more people and there had not been vehicles to stop his charge, then there would have been many more casualties than just Heather Heyer and the 20 people who were injured. It would have been a massacre to rival the truck attack in Nice. Uh, it's domestic terrorism, and I really hate the fact that our government is incapable or unwilling to charge this man with domestic terrorism. He is being brought up on hate crimes, he's being brought up on murder and assault, but there are no terrorism charges being levied against him, even though this was clearly an act of political terrorism against people whom he disagreed with. Absolutely. It's it's one of those things that... It's, it's something that folks who don't necessarily, you know, spend a lot of time with politics, and I don't say this in the fashion of all people should be, you know, spending so much more time looking at what what politicians are doing. I don't, I don't come from it from that angle. It's more just the thing that like politics and government and the system that propagates itself is a very 
complex socioeconomic system that has been built up over centuries uh, of different competing interests uh, putting their own little pieces into it. And I I think uh, something that is especially apparent in situations like this is, is just how much we have to sit down and look at the government and think, what what factors have led to things like this? Or what factors have have brought uh, us to the situation of where, why can't the government do what it would seem logical to do? And I think part of that is just the fact that uh, the the United States government is not quite at the point, uh, you know, there's the beginning stages, but it's not quite at the point where it's obvious that these people are out and out uh, holding very extreme, very far-right views, uh, kind of creeping at the corners right now. But the I think the problem is that, you know, if if the government went in and classified this as domestic terrorism, as it should be. This is a terroristic act uh, designed, uh, if we take, there's many, many different definitions of terrorism, but if we take the uh, idea of, uh, I think my, uh, I've heard definitions in the past of attacking civilian targets to enact political change so you know it's it's the whole one man's terrorist is another man's freedom fighter and uh, that's not really a good equivalence there but uh, there there is something there of who are who are the victims here uh, did did he go out and attack the government did he go out and attack people and what happened is exactly that it's a civilian gathering and they've gone out and this is not an insurrectionary act. This is a terroristic act because it is committing an act of terror with the intent to cause some sort of political change against civilian targets. And going after him on those charges would then necessitate the fact that, you know, now federal prosecutors and state prosecutors now have to go into court where these things are public, where there are reporters where there are people, you know, around to document, and they would have to argue why why this is terrorism. And then the defense attorneys, their job, of course, being to protect their client, will uh, go back and forth. And I think the end result would be that uh, the this this man's social media, of course, has already been brought up. Uh, but in a bigger context of governments going after on domestic terrorist charges, they have to present the ugly truth that this was not a act committed in isolation. This was not some lone wolf that, you know, just went off on his own and, oh, everyone else, everyone else was, was fine. And, you know, but he, he was just the, the bad apple in the group. No, it would have to be discussed that, no, this was a concerted, planned effort that this was talked about in private discord servers and uh, and it would present the sort of thing that by discovery uh, if the government went and did stuff by discovery it would probably create a dragnet that would get even more people caught up in this even more people complicit in this even more people who express their support and sympathy for this man's actions 
and I don't know. It, it, it's something I'd have to think about a bit more, but I do think that the government right now is not in a position where it wants to pursue that because it would be if you start drawing the if you know you if you if you break out all the pictures and pin them up on the wall and start stringing string around um you do very quickly find that a lot of these folks are not very many steps of separation removed from other individuals who are quote-unquote more respectable but uh still very sympathetic to these things and uh, i i think there is there is something there that they don't want to disturb that hornet's nest because yeah then it starts getting connected to various public figures very various influencers as they're being called nowadays out in social media and, uh, and the media in general and then you find out that oh yeah um there's actual sitting politicians who uh, actively sympathize with nazis and uh, might not protest against you know the the abolition of democracy in this country and you know we've got congress people who are at this stage and we've definitely got plenty in state legislatures across the country and it's it's just something that i feel like even even you know uh Democrats who want to go out and say, yes, we strongly condemn this and it's, it's a great thing. I, I think even they don't want sometimes. And I, when I say Democrats, I of course mean, uh, public figures, pundits, uh, elite individuals, uh, the working class, a uh, very different story. But as far as folks with a platform, uh, probably don't want to approach that either because then they also have to start asking and answering the startling questions of, oh my God, there's these people and uh, they're secretly texting each other and on these private, uh, on these private servers about how maybe he didn't do anything wrong. Maybe this is, uh, this was a good thing even like this is, this is a reality that we as the left have confronted long ago because we, yeah, it's not not to toot our own horns too much. It's just a simple fact of these people are very violent, very extremist, uh, have very abhorrent, uh, prejudiced views, and are willing to go to extreme and violent ends to uphold those abhorrent views. And the rest of society just is kind of in a situation where it doesn't want to approach the issue. It's it's just yeah. Well, I guess uh, one silver lining to note is that even though these fascist, you know, organizations and influencers may have, you know, uh, close connections or, you know, maybe just a few degrees of separation apart between, um, you know, violent extremists and respectable media and personalities and politicians, it's worth noting that there is very little sense of solidarity between fascists. Um, you know, when leftists are arrested and charged unfairly, when they're, um, when they are, you know, persecuted by the state, uh, their comrades, anarchists, socialists, or communists, whatever tendency, will come to their aid, will come to their defense, will show up to the trial, will speak on their behalf, will, um, you know, will fight to get them legal representation, will, um, 
will protest outside of the courthouse. We saw this with the J20 protesters in D.C. Um, There was none of that for Alex Fields. Uh, There was nobody. There were only a handful of supporters who showed up to his trial. Um, The witnesses on the stand who spoke in his defense were still very careful to distance themselves from him. And after he was convicted, when he went to sentencing, not a single supporter showed up to the courthouse. Not a single one. Uh, No one came to Alex Fields' defense because there is no solidarity between fascists. And that's what separates, or that's one of the things that separates the left from the right, is that we value our comrades as people. We value them as comrades, whereas fascists see other individuals merely as tools to be used. And in the case of Alex Fields, he served as a weapon of mass destruction to be used against the right's ideological enemies. He served them for over a year as a rhetorical talking point and, you know, as a essentially a tool of propaganda. And now that he's sentenced, now that he is going to jail, he no longer serves any purpose for them. So they feel no reason to support him. Uh, Alex Fields is abandoned, and I hope that stings. I hope he realizes how little solidarity, how little uh, respect how little support he gets from the people that he once considered his friends. And I hope that that hurts him a lot as he sleeps at night in jail. Yeah, I think, I think that'll definitely be on his mind. I, I'm also kind of a pessimist when it comes to that sort of thing though, because I have absolutely no doubt that he'll be taken in by one of the many prison gangs that are now prevalent in the prison industrial complex. And yeah, I have no doubt that the prison Nazis will support him, but at the same time, there's a lot of black gangs in prison too. So uh, maybe they can get a few licks in, you know, prison violence is a horrible thing. And prison as a concept should be abolished, at least in its present form. But as long as that aberrant of a system exists, uh, we might as well hope that the worst people in our society the worst of the fascists uh, experience their fair share of that awfulness. Indeed. Well, lest we, you know, uh, so quickly turn from this topic and just move into better news, uh, I'm, I'm going to have a one-two punch for the listeners here uh, for another thing that uh, I've also been informed of by Faye. And uh, quite shocking what I'm hearing. And she has, as again, more details, uh, though uh, I'm struggling to find some news reports about this. This sounds like it's coming from uh, eyewitness sources from our comrades. Um, But there's some stuff going on in Tallahassee, as I understand, that uh, some some stuff going on of a church and evicting the homeless. Yes, this is very recent. This has happened within the last 48 hours. Um, Currently, our comrades on the ground there, um, you know, Tallahassee Mutual Aid Disaster Relief, Tallahassee DSA, Parson Bolt, and some of the anarchist comrades down there in the Florida Panhandle in Central Florida um, have reported that there is a uh, bit of a situation regarding some of the people who were displaced by Hurricane Michael. Now, this is something that is very near and dear to our hearts because we staged a major relief operation to help uh, the people who were affected by that storm. 
the SRA raised $3,500 for Hurricane Michael relief. Our comrade Oso from the North Georgia chapter delivered a pickup truck with over $2,000 worth of supplies to the Florida um, People's Action Center in Tallahassee. Um, You know, those supplies, we also uh, donated $1,500 to the Tallahassee DSA for their relief efforts. And all of that was used to very great effect to help the people who were affected by that storm. Uh, And since then... um, the leftist community in Tallahassee and the surrounding areas has continued to do excellent work in supporting the people who have been displaced by this storm and have had difficulty getting resources from official channels like FEMA. Unfortunately, some of those official channels, which had heretofore been helpful, uh, that had been helpful, have now begun to turn against the people who have not been able to get back on their feet. There was an encampment of people whose homes were destroyed by Hurricane Michael or who were homeless and returned to Hurricane Michael to find that the shelters that they had once relied upon are no longer open or are no longer able to serve them. These are people who are unable to receive FEMA grants, who are unable to uh, get assistance because they did not own a home or they did not own property. They Perhaps they rented, their belongings were destroyed, and they were unable to get adequate compensation to get back on their feet. Many of these people, several dozen, um, camped on the grounds of the Forest Park United Methodist Church in Panama City um, with the permission of the pastor and of other local aid organizations. Um, They've been there for several weeks, um, but many of these people have no place to go. So when a deadline was issued stating that these people needed to leave, uh, many of them were unable to. Some of them did not even have enough money to afford a cab. And even if they did have that, even if they did have that money, they had nowhere to take a cab to. They had no home. They had no family to rely upon. They had nowhere to go. Two days ago, sorry, four days ago, several days ago, these displaced people were given a deadline of three days to vacate the site of the church. However, the very next day, police arrived on the scene and informed the people living there that they had until they had until sunset to leave. They were told that they could take only what they could carry. They would be given no assistance with moving their belongings and anything left behind would be destroyed. According to the research currently conducted, and this information may not be accurate, but this is the best information we have available. The site was being managed by local church pastor Andrews and his associate pastor, uh, Sean York. From what I am reading, These two clergymen are sympathetic to the people at the campsite and wanted to give them as much time as possible to leave. However, the relief actions of the United Methodist Church are not under control of the local local clergy. Rather, they are subject to the dictates of the United Methodist Methodist Committee on Relief. This is a large organization um, which acts as essentially a charity branch and disaster relief organization tied to the United United Methodist uh, Church organization. This organization provided money and supplies to the people living in the camp. However, apparently they have decided that they are tired of doing this. The day before the evictions, they gave a grant of $600,000 to another local relief organization. They gave $600,000 to a local Methodist relief organization, the Alabama-West Florida Conference of the Methodist Church. However, rather than giving that organization time to organize 
and stabilize relief efforts, the the United Methodist uh, Committee on Relief moved immediately to evict the people living on church property. No assistance was given to help those people find other housing. The the local leftist organizations on the ground, Tallahassee DSA and the anarchists uh, with mutual aid disaster relief, went to the site and provided transportation and temporary housing for the people who were displaced. However, many were forced to leave the bulk of their belongings behind, including large quantities of donated goods. Once the site was cleared, police and city officials began to destroy the site using bulldozers, forklifts, and other heavy machinery. Tents. Sorry, this is making me very angry. (laughs) Um, Tents, stoves, beds, food, water, sanitary supplies, personal belongings which people were unable to gather or had forgotten in their rush to leave, were bulldozed up, crushed into piles, put into trash bags and dumpsters, and carried away to be incinerated. This included hundreds, possibly thousands of dollars worth of supplies that were donated by the local community and may have even included supplies donated by the SRA and other organizations early on in the relief. All of this aid, which had been given to these people, was completely destroyed and they were left to fend for themselves, while hundreds of thousands of dollars were given to organizations which were unprepared to care for these people. That money now will go only to those people that the Alabama-West Florida Conference can locate if they even bother to do so. More likely, many of these funds will go to people who are already in more stable situations, who have, uh, who have alternate housing, who have addresses where the church can reach them. Many of the homeless people, both those who were homeless before the disaster and those who were made homeless by its winds and waves, will not have addresses or easy points of contact where the church can follow up. These people will be left to fend for themselves as best as they can. Being homeless in the wake of a hurricane is a very difficult situation to be in. Many of the resources, which are normally available to the homeless population, are completely destroyed or unavailable, or are being used to support lower or being used to support working and middle class people whose homes were destroyed. During these situations, in the aftermath of these situations, the homeless are the people who need our support most. And they should be given all the time possible to recover from this situation until until normal shelter operations can be recovered. Forcing these people off of church property and destroying donated supplies in the fashion that they were is unconscionable. And while reports suggest that the local pastors of the Forest Park United Methodist Church wish to give these people more time, the national organization and the United Methodist Committee on Relief apparently didn't have, apparently were unwilling to follow Christ's example in helping the in helping the needy and people who have nowhere else to go. I know that I've been repeating myself during this several times, but I really struggle to come up with words for how disgusted I am by this action, and I cannot believe the waste and inhumanity displayed by this. Currently, members of Tallahassee DSA and Mutual Aid Disaster Relief are getting in contact with local and national media, and hopefully a story will be published soon to bring broader attention to this issue. It's only because of our close relationship that we established with these organizations during our mutual aid action back in November, or 
back in October that we were able to hear about it at all. These sorts of stories rarely make national news headlines because they happen weeks or months after the headline-grabbing destruction of the natural disaster occurs. People forget. People think that it's already been solved, that it's already been dealt with, that churches and federal authorities will have already helped everyone who needs it. But that is simply not the case. These natural disasters like hurricanes have long-term effects on the local population, and some people are never able to recover. Their lives are destroyed, and the resources that should be available to help them are withheld or are only given out grudgingly, often at a level where people can only make a subsistence living and are unable to attain real economic and housing security. The Socialist Rifle Association will monitor the situation on the ground, and if any way to donate to help these people becomes available, we will notify our followers over Twitter and Facebook as soon as possible so that people can donate to help those who are displaced by Hurricane Michael and who are still unable to receive the help and support they need to regain stable housing. We hope that this situation is resolved soon. We hope that the United Methodist Committee on Relief reconsiders its actions and that they take a more Christian, more socially responsible view of their responsibility towards the poor and the needy in the wake of this disaster. We'll conclude that that, uh, excellent diatribe there uh, with a quote from Matthew 25, uh, starting at verse 41 of the New International Version translation. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, and you did not invite me in. I needed clothes, and you did not clothe me. I was sick and in prison, and you did not look after me. They will also answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry, or thirsty, or a stranger, or needing clothes, or sick, or in prison, and did not help you? He will reply, Truly I tell you, whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do for me. Then they will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. It doesn't get much more clear-cut than that, folks. Yeah, I'm, I'm not a Christian. I am firmly a materialist, but... The admonition to help the needy, to help the least among us, is one of the most noble and uh, most um, one of the most noble and most good parts of the Christian religion. And it is a shame that so many Christians fail to follow those commandments. And likewise, as leftists, although we approach these issues from a different perspective, uh, Obviously, we still must consider our responsibility to help those who are in need, because only by helping those who suffer the worst oppression can we hope to build the solidarity to challenge the structures that cause these sorts of people that cause these people to slip through the cracks in the first place. Absolutely, and no, it is a truly staggering and shocking thing to hear that this. This could even be happening in general. Uh, I, I would expect this from, you know, a a business, really. Uh, I'd expect this to hear this from Walmart. You know, Walmart had their private security people going around trying to get people off of encampments. 
all over the country. I think it was in California, refugees from the campfire were were park, were camping out on Walmart parking lots and private security hired by Walmart went and tried to get them out. And here is a church, uh, a, a ostensibly charitable institution. Um, churches receive uh, tax-exempt status for the, not only their religious purposes, but for the fact that they are ostensibly organized to better society, that they are there to provide uh, vital services for the community. That is ostensibly a purpose of a church, is to be uh, a service to the community. And here they are uh, removing uh, removing uh, people with nowhere else to go and d- frequently denying their purpose uh, as as stewards and as uh, advocates for uh, these individuals who have no one else left to talk for them and to advocate on their behalf. And it is very unfortunate, then, that it is the situation where it is groups not even necessarily charged with this, but it is groups like the DSA, like the SRA, like Mutual Aid Defense Relief that now have the responsibility of ensuring that these people are taken care of. And it is it is something I wish it could just be that we show up and we help in the beginning, and once things are stabilized, then existing community support structures take over. And that's how it ought to be, that you have individuals and groups that can come in after a crisis and help normalize the situation and help get the infrastructure back together and help stave off those crucial few days where you don't have the support systems in place to get society back on its feet. But once that's passed, then you have all these trappings of the modern world that that allow things to hum along. And when they can't support it, well, then it falls back on the, the, sh- the shoulders of the people who ordinarily would just be doing this uh, for a few days, a few weeks, to try to, again, stabilize the situation. That, that is the... It is not unlike a hospital that a EMS paramedics their job is very different than doctors and nurses their one is there for an emergency to stabilize you while you get to the hospital another is there once things are established and uh, essentially this is uh, the nurses kicking the patient out of the hospital and breathing it to to paramedics to figure out is is the best analogy coming to my mind at the time, and it's it's astonishing to me that we are in this situation. If the thing that comes to my mind is if this religious organization had six hundred thousand dollars to kick around, why was that money not available for people to find transportation or to find temporary housing? Why was that money kicked around various nonprofits rather than being given directly to people? who need it, who could immediately benefit from it? Why was it left to individuals in the DSA and Mutual Aid Disaster Relief and other local informal community groups? Why was it left to them to bear the cost of this themselves, to bring these people into their own homes themselves? 
Why was this large national organization unable to dedicate at least a fraction of its resources towards directly aiding the people most in need? Of course, the answer is bureaucracy and the nonprofit industrial complex and the way that the capitalist structures of our societies incentivize uh, incentivize organizations like this to ignore those most in need. Again, I will keep my ears open. I will speak to my contacts in Tallahassee. And if I find if I find any way that people can contribute to help the people who are still in need, uh, I'll pass it along and we will make that available on our social media. We'll promote it through our Slack and we'll try to collect whatever donations we can. Obviously, the people on the ground in Tallahassee and the surrounding cities, again, this happened in uh, this happened in Panama City, which was almost completely destroyed by the hurricane. Um, obviously, it is up to them to do the actual work. But if people in other parts of the country can contribute financially, and if that money can go to directly aiding the people who need it, then that's something that uh, we should do. And that's something that we would like to support. So... Uh, keep an eye on our social media. We'll keep you posted as soon as we hear anything, uh, any way to contribute, we will let you know. <sighs> well, that is as depressing a topic as ever to make our way to the transitional point of this episode. So, you know, we will have uh, member questions after a short word from our sponsors, which is... Uh, the very same people who are sending in questions for the most part. So, so thank you, people sending in questions. Uh, you're, you're very, those questions are very helpful for this episode. And also people sending me money every month. Very helpful. Uh, as, as some of you may be aware, but for first time listeners, uh, I run a Patreon at patreon.com slash socialist RA podcast. Um, as, as people have heard many times now, this is a personal project of mine. I do not get compensated for this. I, in fact, pay the organization a, uh, reasonable licensing fee to use the name in this project. And I, I collect some money for the, uh, time I spend on this. Admittedly, less so with this little bit of a hiatus, but again, with the holidays coming up, I plan to be sitting in front of this microphone more often. Uh, getting some special episodes out, talking to some special guests that are still lined up. Uh, they just have much longer uh, and much busier schedules than even I at this point, uh, as well as pinning a few more essays, since that seems to be pretty popular with people who read them on my Patreon account. Um, tiers start at $5 uh, a month, and, you know, that, that, that buys me five boxes of spaghetti, it's, that's basically what my Patreon does, is it pays for my food budget for the month, and I am perfectly happy that I get to eat for talking to y'all over the internet. So, again, you can go to Socialist RA uh, Podcast at uh, Patreon.com and chip in a few bucks if you are able and you so feel like contributing to the cause. With that, we shall move directly into member questions. I have the Fred pulled up here and we'll just take them as we go. And, you know, we can, uh, either of us will comment or not comment as we see fit. And that's, that's how it's going to be. So let's, let us see what we got here. Um, so 
First question is uh, from, I guess I shouldn't say people's names because that, that might get weird and they have not consented to that. Um, first question is, what is love? Uh, well, Baby, don't dear. hurt me. Don't hurt me no more. That has satisfactorily answered the question. Um, second question. Enumerated list of proper methods of getting people to post their hog. Um, I would suggest primarily targeting people um, in states that have higher hog productions. So um, just off the top of my head, I think Idaho would be a good good state. Um, maybe maybe post some direct marketing to Idaho farmers. Um, that I believe would be a pretty Iowa. Good way. I believe that Iowa has the highest concentration of hogs per capita of any state, so that's probably a good place to look. Um, obviously, the most important thing when requesting people to show their hog is uh, the volume of the request. The more people that ask, the more likely it is that your uh, intended recipient will get the message. So uh, the more people you can get asking people to post hog, uh, the more likely you are to get a satisfactory response. Excellent. Uh, what about the congressional decision about Yemen? Um, my response to that is, where have they been for the last several years? Where was the outrage when Obama was the one doing it? Um, basically, why are we still friends, allies at all with Saudi Arabia? To which I'll answer my own question and say, oil, it's always oil. Um, ever since we went off of the gold standard officially under Richard Nixon and went to the petrodollar, um... Oil is oil is king. Uh, that's that's why we invade countries. That's why our basically our entire uh, military s- alliance system post Cold War exists is not so much anymore um, in defense against uh, the Warsaw Pact as much as it is in defense of ensuring that America has a consistent and steady supply of oil and that OPEC doesn't get too handsy with it. Um, so. You know, not being friends with Saudi Arabia would cause issues with that, despite the fact that they continue to be and are a repressive monarchy, wherein literal monarchs and princes and nobles run around uh, acting like it's the the early thousands. Um, Yeah. It's it's a stupid situation, and if I were not president of the SRA, but president of the United States, I would very quickly cause a debilitating and awful economic crisis because I couldn't keep my mouth shut, and uh, things would get very nasty with Saudi Arabia. Um, it's great that you know some amount of effort is being done about this now, and uh, we yeah we're contributing to a brutal and terrifying assault on Yemen through the Saudi Arabian uh, invasion and occupation of it. Um, And cool, we're going to try to stop that now. But my question is, or my statement, as it were, is too late. I mean, shit's happened already. Kids are starving. Like It's kind of ridiculous that uh, Saudi Arabia dropping an American-made bomb um, from a bomber, which was refueled midair by an American uh, refueling plane. Saudi Arabia dropped an American bomb on a school bus containing over 40 Saudi, uh, 40 Yemeni school children and murdered all of them. 
and uh, no one in Congress cared at all, except I think Bernie Sanders made a statement. But uh, as soon as the Saudis murdered a journalist uh, with ties to the Washington Post, oh, suddenly we're outraged. How dare they do such a thing? It's just... I'll remind the listeners right now that the Washington Post endorsed the Saudi occupation of Yemen. So uh, every hypocritical journalist out there that felt the need to endorse this oppressive regime uh, being supported by a imperialist power doing its own little micro-imperialism, but the moment one of their own gets knocked off, well, ugh. I'd also like to say Washington Post in general, um, especially their op-ed section and their op-ed editors. Um, they've been really, really, really even more awful than usual lately, especially with that hot take they published um, talking about, oh, how awful it is that we don't have the wasps in charge, the white Anglo-Saxon Protestants, how awful it is that uh, we need those Ivy League old money sorts of politicians back and it's all this young but that's a completely different subject and we have lots of more questions to get to but just for the record fuck the washington post and fuck jeff bezos fantabulous uh why do people write 50 tweet long threads instead of just writing a blog post uh well this is this is something i've wondered about myself um i think it's because blogs are passe now um, but I think the place of a good internet essay is still very much something that I think needs, needs to come back in a lot of ways. I miss my old message board days where I just sit at a keyboard for an hour and slam out a gigantic message on a form. Uh, next question. Um, NFA e-file form one is pretty short wait time right now. Give a brief overview of the e-file process. So yes, this is a new system that is put in place um, by the ATF for people to file um, their paperwork and their tax stamp to get a suppressor, short barrel rifle, or short barrel shotgun um, to get that paperwork processed more quickly over the internet instead of having to mail things in and wait months and months and months and months to get approval from the ATF. Instead, they've semi-automated the system, you know, semi-automatically, um, to allow certain NFA items uh, and transactions to be processed more quickly, which is a good thing. Um, although, obviously, NFA items tend to be more of a bourgeois gun item. Uh, generally, you know, working class people aren't going to be buying a lot of suppressors or a lot of, you know, tax stamped rifles, short barrel rifles or anything like that. But uh, it's good that this sort of arbitrary weight that these had is uh, going away. Um I haven't followed this very closely because I can't afford NFA items personally. Um, but looking at a guide here, uh, it looks like you go to you go to the website atfonline.gov/eforms, and then you uh, register an account. You log in. Uh, you select Form One from the home screen or uh, whichever form you want to file. Uh, you fill it out with all the information that you normally would on a paper application for a you know NFA item transfer. And then you hit submit, and uh, it goes to the system electronically. And uh, yeah, they process it, and apparently it's going much quicker. People are getting uh, applications back in a matter of just a couple of weeks, 
or in some cases even days, rather than the months that it would take previously. Um, so yeah, that's definitely a uh, great improvement there. Definitely do that if you uh, want an NFA item. Um, you know, uh, obviously uh, part of that is because of the Republican administration in office, the Democrats being anti-gun, have uh, incentive to do everything they can to slow down the ATF, to make everything as difficult as possible, to make people fill out long forms and have to go through long, uh, drawn-out approval processes with arbitrary uh, waiting periods and steps and doing everything on dead trees. Um, now that the Republicans are in office and, uh, you know, their uh, their donors in the firearms industry want to sell more, uh, want to sell more suppressors and more gun parts. Yeah, uh, they've streamlined the process and it's a lot quicker now. So if you have the money and you want to buy a suppressor or something like that, now's the time. Um, as I understand, and I may be wrong at, wrong here, but from what I understand, the application to own a machine gun or certain destructive devices uh, still has to be filed in paper. They're still putting additional restrictions on that. Um, obviously, Republicans don't want a headline saying that they've, you know, legalized machine guns. It's easier for criminals to get machine guns or anything like that. So uh, from what I understand, a machine gun still has to go through the long paper process, but suppressors and SBSs and SBRs, uh, possibly AOWs, uh, you can get those uh, You can get those transfers done a lot quicker now. So take advantage of that while you can, if you can. Excellent. Uh, this question asks, Lego versus Connects? To which I will shortly answer that when I was a child, I had a big, uh, one of those big, you know, folding uh, bins that you can stack on top of each other that you get at like Costco or something. And it was filled with Legos and nothing annoyed me more than when I was dumping it out, sorting for my Legos, I'd find a f***ing connects. And that is my opinion. Um, yeah, I grew up with Lego. But also some of the Kinect stuff is really cool. I don't know. I think Lego is more versatile in the things that I'm interested in. But maybe that's just because I grew up with it. Um, yeah. There's some confirma- confirmation bias going on here. So. Absolutely. Uh, I guess we're of the Lego generation and the people a few years younger are probably the Kinect generation or something like that. Probably. Now, uh, uh, let me rephrase that. Now the new generation doesn't have to worry about that at all. My son will not have to worry about this debate because uh, his dad's too broke to buy him any of that. So he will he will be the uh, wood blocks generation, and he's he's gonna he's gonna have some great times with scraps of wood I find off the side of the road or something. Everybody, um, please give to Alex's Patreon so that he can buy a Lego set for his kid. This is a great injustice that must be that must be remedied immediately. This is your mutual aid directive for the day. I am actually going to get him a Lego set for Christmas. So, shh, don't tell him that. Uh, let's see. I didn't know there was a podcast. Where can I listen to it? I'm glad you asked, the listener. Um, if you are listening to this right now, congratulations, you found out where to listen to it. Um, for people who are listening to it right now, but are maybe unsatisfied with how they are listening to it. For instance, I used to listen to podcasts entirely uh, through web browser, the barbarian that I was back then before I obtained enlightenment and downloaded a podcast listening app on my phone. 
Um, we are available pretty much everywhere you can listen to podcasts. We are available on iTunes because Apple hasn't kicked me off yet for some reason. We are available on Google Podcasts, on Google Play Music because Google uh, seemingly likes to have like two or three services that do the exact same thing. Um, it's starting to get a little bit obnoxious on my phone actually because I have multiple Google apps that do the same thing and they don't want to let me uninstall them. Um, anyways, uh, you can listen to us on most proprietary and third party podcast apps. Um, small or simple P, uh, not simple, uh, simple casts. Uh, the service I use to host this, um, gives me some data on what uh, apps work. And I mean, I've seen every podcast app I know of and ones I never even heard of. Uh, there's like Dog Catcher, there's Overcast, there's Pocket Casts, my personal recommendation. Uh, they don't sponsor me yet, but I will, I'll figure out how I can get a sponsorship because I will praise Pocket Casts till the end of time because it is a genuinely good app. And I, I really appreciate it. There's a small paywall. I forget what I paid for it. I think it was like two or three bucks. It's, it's, it wasn't much at all. That, that might have been on a sale. Uh, see if you can catch it on a sale, if at all possible, but it's, it's well worth the money. I've definitely gotten my money's worth out of it. Um, you can, of course, still listen online at podcast.socialistra-wichita.org. Um, that is the core website as well as uh, I post the URL, direct URLs to my social media account. Um, or, you know, you can also download it and, like, listen to it on Windows Media Player or something. That's, uh, I've actually seen uh, – there's actually a category on my statistics that's Windows Media Player, and I wasn't aware that it could track that, but apparently it can. So there's people who listen to it on Windows Media Player, and I – it's everywhere, folks. You can listen to it everywhere. Just, just, just search on whatever you, whatever floats your boat, and that will, that will do it. Um, next question: How to find information about flavors of the left? I recommend Wikipedia. Uh, I know people, people might give me grief for that. Uh, Wikipedia is a still good source. They, they, it's, it's very well organized nowadays. Um, you can really get down some rabbit holes just clicking through Wikipedia articles. Um, and it's a good introductory explainer. It's, it's not where you should end your discussion or your research, but like it's a good introductory explainer of if you've never heard of Marxist Leninism before, you can put that into Wikipedia and you'll get a very quick summation in the header text of what's this all about. And if you're just looking for a quick, uh, quick explainer, I think Wikipedia works very well for that. As far as getting more in depth, at that point, uh, you really got to start looking at like finding. Uh, that's another thing of uh, Wikipedia is good about is finding organizations that describe themselves as a political tendency, and then researching those organizations, going to the websites, seeing what their platforms are, because uh, uh, any tendency is ultimately. Uh, defined by its adherents and the people practicing it. And so finding the platforms of these organizations that are adhering to political uh, tendency on the left uh, is a good way to find out what these tendencies are all about. 
Also, it's worth noting that um, tendencies change over time, and sometimes tendencies sort of lose their relevance, or or they cease to become good descriptors of what someone's politics actually are. Um, to name one in particular, and uh, someone will probably get upset at this, but uh, Trotskyism started as a single tendency. Uh, you know, people who agreed with Trotsky's criticisms of the USSR and you know, supported, you know, global revolution and everything else, um, permanent revolution. Uh, since then, the political re- relevance of that, of those positions, uh, have sort of declined. Trotskyism today is completely different from Trotskyism in the 1950s or the 60s or the 70s or the 80s or the 90s. Um, the history of American Trotskyism in particular is riddled with splits and disagreements between various organizations and leaders. And uh, with the fall of the Soviet Union, many of the core uh, reasons, theoretical splits between the Trotskyists and the Marxist-Leninists sort of uh, evaporated, but there are still cultural differences uh, between these disparate tendencies. And so, um, you know, reading an article on Trotskyism may give you a little bit of the theoretical understanding of a tendency like that. But the best way to find out is really just to talk to people who have that tendency. You know, go into leftist spaces and have friendly conversations with, of, you know, with people with different views. You know, find out what people believe. Find out what Marxist-Leninists believe by talking to Marxist-Leninists. Find out what anarcho-communists believe by talking talking to anarcho-communists. You know, uh, Wikipedia is a good, you know, beginner's resource, but politics is a fluid and ever-changing world especially on the left and the best way to understand it is to talk to the people who are actually going out and putting that politics into action or if not the people who are putting it into action at the very least you can talk to the people who are arguing about it on the internet absolutely i'd also point out that for some tendencies uh, they are harder to research just because there's less literature um, so for myself, uh, coming from uh, a syndicalist background, it's hard to research syndicalism because it is not a tendency steeped in theory. So, you know, Wikipedia is going to be good for things that have a lot of theory because those are really easily cited. Um, syndicalism, there's no major figures. Um, there's Amelia Puget, and that's about it. Um, then, then there's just a bunch of other labor readers at that point. Basically, you have leaders from the CNTFAI, you have IWW leaders, uh, you have, you have just basically a bunch of labor union, industrial union leaders that, that were part of the syndicalist movement. Um, in same ways, not as much on, uh, anarchist communist side of things. There's, there's obviously a lot more figures, uh, on ANCOMs and LIBCOMs. Uh, from Blosa Luxemburg to Kopkin, of course, and uh, other individuals on uh, the anarchist and libertarian side of the left. But even then, especially I feel like on uh, anarchist tendencies, uh, it's even more fluid than what you might get from uh, Marxist-Leninist tendency that is more uh, in favor of theory and having strong theoretical foundations. Um, you'll find that because of that fluidity, you can get sometimes contradicting 
uh, beliefs, and you can find uh, ENCOMs and LIBCOMs that disagree on on things within their own tendency, uh, just because these things have changed a lot, and depending on the culture and the nation that was being set up in, and this even goes for stuff like Marxist-Leninism, depending on your surroundings and your time period and your uh, situation that you're in, can come to different uh, conclusions. And so it really is that in order to start doing further research, uh, like Faye said, you have to go out and you have to find modern adherence in your situation, in your location, in the political scenario that you're in, and see what those folks are adapting to. Because ultimately, politics is one long game of seeing what the person before you did, and then figuring out what you need to do to improve on it. Um, related to that question is, aspects of American history that can be used as a way to push civic nationalism to the left. So, touchy subject we've got here. Um, I'll let you take this one, Faye. Oh, gee, thanks, Alex. <laughs> well, um, for starters, I think that uh, the American syndicalist movement of the early 20th century is a good place to look. The trade unions and labor unions, the uh, industrial workers of the world, um, those were very influential organizations uh, at their peak during the 1920s, 1930s. Um, these organizations were able to mobilize people on a mass scale. Uh, the IWW at one point had hundreds of thousands of members. Uh, and it's certainly a shame today to see it shrunken to uh, merely several thousand. But uh, I believe that the syndicalist and trade union movement uh, in the early, 20, early 20th century and the American socialist movement um, are very good places to start. People like Eugene Debs, um, Helen Keller, who is a uh, person that's often talked about in uh, liberal uh, in liberal circles as an example of someone who's overcome uh, adversity in the form of a disability. Um, you know, liberals often like to talk about Helen Keller in, uh, you know, in terms of her disability, but very rarely do they mention the fact that she was an active member of the Socialist Party in the United States, and that she advocated uh, very strongly um, uh, for reforms. She was not a revolutionary, uh, to my knowledge, but she was very firmly on the extreme left end of what we would call a social democrat or you know, perhaps on the right end of what we would call a democratic socialist. Um, figures like that are very good to reference in the American socialist tradition. Um, I would also say that certain sort of pre-socialist figures can be worth referencing. Um, obviously, we've talked about John Brown uh, and his actions uh, for the abolitionist cause and uh, other abolitionists. Um, while not, you know, Marxists per se, the sort of liberatory politics that they espoused are still very relevant um, to the chains of capitalism that uh, people suffer under today. Obviously not as bad as slavery, but the uh, fundamental way that oppression works is similar regardless of the exact form that it takes. Um, other figures, you know, um, Thomas Paine uh, in the American Revolution was a, uh, you know, the famous pamphleteer. Uh, give me liberty or give me death sort of guy. Uh, actually, I don't think that was him. Edit that out. Um, he was a very radical revolutionary. Again, pre-Marx, pre-socialist, but uh, he definitely um, differed 
significantly in his ideology from the more, you know, bourgeois landed elements of the revolution, like George Washington and Thomas Jefferson, the slave, the slave owners and the landowners. Um, Thomas Paine had a very directly liberatory and revolutionary approach to politics and was very much a spokesperson for the common man, um, rather than approaching things purely from the idealistic, um, you know, idealistic in theory, oppressive in practice uh, actions of the main founding fathers. And uh, of course, in general, um, it's probably worthwhile to look for any quote from any major uh, figure in American history, even if they weren't a socialist, some of them have probably at least said things that are socialist adjacent. And hearing um, socialist ideas or socialist-ish ideas coming from people who uh, are you know, respected in our history is always a good way to get people to start thinking and to start considering changing their opinions. Uh, I, would, I would also be remiss um, if I failed to mention the Black Liberation Movement, uh, in the 1960s and 70s with groups like the Black Panthers who were willing to take militant action in defense of their communities. Figures like Malcolm X and Huey P. Newton and Fred Hampton were among the most uh, revolutionary and inspiring figures on the American left during the 20th century. And uh, while their stories are often um, appropriated and uh, misused, especially by liberals, or they are demonized, by racists and conservatives. Uh, for people who, you know, share some of those sympathies, it's very valuable to study what these people actually believed and what they actually fought for. Um, I would recommend, um, if not as a beginner text, but if you are already a socialist, I would highly recommend reading Revolutionary Suicide by Huey P. Newton. I consider it a very important work. Um, for understanding the Black Panthers and the Black Liberation Movement of the middle of the uh, 20th century. So those are some places to start. Uh, you know, definitely, uh, there's definitely a long history of uh, socialism and workers' movements and uh, projects for, you know, for national liberation and projects for uh, liberation from bondage. And all of these can be tied into the leftist uh into the leftist worldview and can be used to spread our ideas. Absolutely. And kind of building off of, you know, civic things to, to push upon. And I, I know I've heard you talk about this a lot, Faye, um, bringing socialism into the American vocabulary by referencing things we are already familiar with. Um, workplace democracy being a big thing. Uh, one of the things America prides itself on is, you know, this concept that, you know, we have this democratic system in which people can be heard and we can elect our representatives and, and no taxation without representation is one of our rallying cries. And, uh, the effectiveness and implementation of this aside, because this is something that's embedded into our national psyche, it's oftentimes easier to discuss it with people when you start using these terms um, and kind of pointing it back to, well, if if you don't want somebody passing laws over you that you didn't vote for, uh, why do you want your boss who can pass any rule that he wants under the law 
Um, and, and you don't get a say at all. Uh, why, why, why is we, your boss? Yeah. Why do we, uh, if we're so free, why do we spend eight or 10 or 12 hours a day, uh, under the rule of a little dictatorship? Absolutely. Hopes, dreams, aspirations for the SRA in the coming year. Um, so in that order, hopes. Um, I hope we have 10,000 members by the end of next year. That would be fantabulous. Uh, dreams. Um, probably that also is a pretty big dream. Um, but, you know, uh, if my hope is 10,000, my dream is 100,000. Let's, let's do this. Uh, SRA chapter for every DSA chapter. Um, aspirations. I would really like to see us be more involved and, uh, become more steeped in advocacy work. That's something that this year, as we kind of revved up, we didn't do too much of, but you know, we, we've, we've got that C4 stuff to, to take advantage of. And I think, I think political advocacy work of going out and talking to, uh, politicians and lobbyists and legislators and uh, anyone who will listen to us and getting to the point where people will listen to us. Uh, it's not all about just how many members you have, but also how much can you, how much attention can you bring on an issue? Because oftentimes that uh, is a bigger determining factor, as well as being able to talk to these people in their own language, as it were, of, of being able to convince politicians why they should listen to you and why not only should they listen to you, but why doing what you want is going to be favorable for them. Because ultimately it is, a lot of this is folks looking out for their career ambitions in politics. And so if you can convince them as to why supporting your cause is going to further their career, uh, you can usually find uh, things to be a little bit easier to do. So might as well take advantage of that 501c4 stuff and, and get going on that with, for next year. Next Do you question. have hopes, dreams, and aspirations? I have no hopes, dreams, or aspirations. I am, a, I am a soulless husk, solely dedicated to the cause and the knowledge that it, everything will probably fail and the uh, world will collapse into fascism and climate disaster. So... I'm just here to enjoy the ride. Anyway, uh, next question. Uh, I want two and a half hours of arguing about AKs versus ARs. No. <laughs> um, okay, so the AR-15 is the better gun and the AK is cooler. That pretty much sums I, up my opinion. I bought a knockoff AK-47 and I will be buying a knockoff AR-15. Because uh, twenty-two for life. It's it, nobody can convince me otherwise. Uh, twenty-two is the superior caliber. I get to hunt squirrels with it, and uh, nobody's going to tell me that twenty-twos aren't just the best thing ever. They're dirt cheap, and I have a bucket of them. I literally buy it in a bucket. They ship it to me to my house in a bucket. Like no other ammo platform can offer me that convenience, and just. Just they ship elegance. the guns to you in a bucket or the ammo? Because I'd like to get a bucket of guns. <laughs> I think that's a business idea right there. Buckets of guns. I, I don't know if we could... <laughs> 
Uh, we'll have to we'll have to investigate the regulations on that one a little bit. I think there might be some limiting factors. <laughs> um, ranting about ovary specific to the point of falsity, self defense articles. Um, I, I I can't give much of a rant about it, but I will say self defense is an extremely fluid, extremely volatile thing, and that it doesn't matter how many times you practice it at home. Um, your first self-defense encounter will be quick, brutal, and violent, um, and you will probably not pull everything off the way you want. Um, it's really just kind of an instinct thing. That's why you practice at home, so that you've just got those motions pre-programmed into your brain, and, and more so than that, your spine. That's actually part of repetitive movements, is that it actually builds up a bit of muscle memory or... Uh, not it's not real memory, but you know it's it, it it helps get things a little bit quicker, and you don't have to go through as many higher thought processes to figure it out in the high stress of the moment. But at the same time, uh, it doesn't matter how many articles you read about these specific encounters; uh, all of that goes out to your brain the moment something actually kicks in, and once the adrenaline flies, it's really just down to whatever you've ingrained and uh, whatever your instincts go through for there. And it's uh, all I can say is know the platform you're going to be using because in the heat of the moment, it's going to be a matter of mechanical reflexes. It's not going to be a matter of uh, complex thought and doing a lot of cost-benefit analysis in your brain and doing the flowchart of, if I do this, will that the attacker do that or this or that or the other? It's just going to be your body knows the platform you're using and your body's going to respond in the terms of its instincts. And that's how self-defense is going to be until that initial adrenaline rush goes out. And if your self-defense encounter lasts longer than 10 seconds, um, sucks to be you. Because now it's a matter of endurance, and shit's gonna get bad real fast. So, uh, next question, Alex. What is your cat's name? Uh, my cat's name uh, depends on which one. I've been posting pictures of Coral, who is the younger cat and has a perpetual kitten face. The old cranky one, who is sleeping next to me right now, is Autumn. So, how important is education learning theory when forming a socialist organization? This will depend on who you ask. Um, as a syndicalist, I hold to the motto that uh, syndicalists do not philosophize, they act, and that's basically my thing. I cannot stand, nor do I wish to steep myself in theory. Uh, I do it because it's good for me but it's not particularly something I am especially fond of. Um, I think if you're going to build an organization, you need some theoretical basis, but it really depends on what you're doing here. Are you building a party? Like, are you starting a political party to, to elect socialist candidates and enact socialist policy? Then you might need some theory to go along with that. Um, usually parties tend to have, you know, some grounding theory to build their platforms upon. Whereas if you're just doing general leftist base building or you're doing, you know, leftist projects, like 
if you want to go start a workers' cooperative, you probably don't need very much theory to do that. Whereas uh, it really depends on how involved in the system are you going to be. And honestly, like the, the left has theory for days. Like I don't think we need. I think we need new theorists. And I think that's a major problem on the left. And I'll take this opportunity to say that I think the left is very much held back by its insistence on relying on ancient theory now in relative terms. That the theories of Karl Marx are a great stepping stone, but are ultimately woefully outdated and inadequate for the modern world. And there must be... uh, things built on top of it. And in some ways, I personally, I do not consider myself a Marxist. I don't really consider my groundwork to be built on the theories of Karl Marx and Frederick Engels. Uh, My socialism stems from different sources, but whether you're building off of it or you're starting new entirely, uh, don't let theory get too caught up in your actions uh, or your actions too caught up in theory you have to be able to build your own as well. And I think a great thing that the left forgets about is the fact that before every theorist and philosopher, uh, their ideas either did not exist or did not exist in that format. That it's the, the era of thinkers for this did not end in the early 1900s as much as we kind of put that out there nowadays it's it is a ongoing and involving process and if you form a socialist organization uh you know maybe you you, that organization creates its own theory like go ahead and go write uh the uh, a leftist equivalent of the cyborg manifesto like go do that that would be great so we had a couple of people um asking us to talk about the protests and riots in France, the uh, Yellow Vest movement, or if you'll pardon my abuse of the French language, Guillette Sanez. I, I know for a fact that that's wrong. Um, this is a big subject. We could probably devote an entire episode to it if we wanted to. Um, I'm going to say that for the most part, uh, I would recommend listening to the recent guillotine podcast about the Yellow Vest movement. Um, Brett and Bones did a very good treatment of it, a very thorough overview of both the situation, um, how it began, uh, the ideology or lack of ideology of the movement, um, what it means for people on the left in America. I think that they overall had a very good take, and uh, I would highly recommend listening to their episode on the subject. Um, The main thing that I would... The main takeaway that I think people should have from France is twofold. First, I think that uh, the Yellow Vest riots are a great example of the way that uh, direct um, the direct confrontation and uh, civil disobedience and not so civil disobedience are extremely powerful tools that the proletariat has available to it. Uh, the French people were able to enact more change with a few weeks of rioting than they were able to enact with years of voting, uh, especially given uh, the contentious manner in which Macron came to power 
uh, and the left was shut out uh, in the first round of voting in favor of the extremist Marine Le Pen. Uh, so definitely uh, riots, street actions, real protests, you know, really shutting down cities and preventing life from going on as normal, not like just the normal American protests where people go out and wave some signs and wear some funny clothes and listen to a speech or two. Real protests can be a major force for change. However, I would also like people to remember that the United States is a very different country from France on many different levels. Uh, Geographically, we're much more spread out. Our culture has much less of a tradition, in recent memory at least, of uh, violent protest and riot being an acceptable thing. We have much less of a labor movement. We have much less. We have much less of the groundwork necessary to make, and to make a movement like the Yellow Vest possible in America. This sort of action that. It, occurred in France is a very powerful tool, but it's a tool that America has neglected. It's a tool that has become rusty from disuse. And it's something that we will need to work and that we will need to put real organizing and real man hours behind to make possible. There have been a number of movements, mostly online recently, calling for a general strike uh, at various dates for various reasons with various demands These movements are not realistic. A general strike or mass protests in the streets like in France are not things that occur because some specific organization went around advocating for people to hit the streets on a certain date. General strikes occur when the oppression of the working class becomes so great that their anger bursts out into the real world and is then organized and directed by labor and by the left into a productive uh, into a productive force for change. This is it's not something that you can plan ahead of time. It's not something that you can control. It's something that you have to build a framework that you have to build infrastructure to support to make these sort of actions possible. Um, it's worth noting that even though these uh, protests in France, even though they were able to enact concessions from Macron, even though they were able to force him to concede to some of their demands, they were not able to force him to resign. They were not able to force a change in government. The Yellow Vests, as powerful of a movement, as powerful of a proletarian movement as it was, was unable to become revolutionary because the left in France, especially the labor unions, have become so moderate, so weak, so watered down, that they are unable to even conceive of the possibility of seizing power for themselves, and instead seek to negotiate with the state. Even in the 1968 uh, riots in France, in the general strike that nearly toppled the French, that nearly toppled the Fifth Republic, even then, the, the labor unions in France were conservative and did not endorse the movement, and there was no organizing force to direct the anger and the energy of the people into a real radical change to the political system. If we want to make radical change in a leftward direction, we must organize, we must build institutions and infrastructure that are capable of directing, of, 
of pointing the proletariat in a direction where it can do the most good and where it can make the most radical changes. Simply sitting around waiting for it to happen without putting in the work of organizing or simply telling people to go out and riot on a certain day will never accomplish the sort of change that we need. It was. It is literally a waste of time. If we want there to be a general strike, if we want there to be mass protests in America, we must put in the work to be able to direct that energy when it bursts out, when the people feel their repression most sharply. Or at the very least, that's my opinion, and that's my tendency with regards to this situation. Indeed, I think these things consistently fail on grounds of organization that you you cannot just have these spontaneous moments without uh, appropriate or without good organizers, without good organizing strategies. And I get not everyone likes the fact that, you know, you need some kind of organizational strategy, but like you have to have a plan. You have to have a plan and things don't get done without plans. Like even, even uh, anarchists, have their greatest success when they have a plan and when they have organizations in place. I've been reading the writings and memoirs of Ricardo Flores Magón, a Mexican anarchist who was instrumental in the Mexican Revolution at the beginning of the 20th century. Um, Very interesting figure, a friend of Emma Goldman. Um, And, you know, even though he was an anarchist, even though they had a very horizontalist, non-hierarchical approach to organizing, they still organized. They still built networks. They still, you know, uh, distributed propaganda telling people how to organize their workplace, you know, spreading revolutionary ideals to the masses. Uh, Ricardo Flores Magón wrote articles for his uh, newspaper, La Generación. He wrote articles for his newspaper from jail and had them smuggled out of American jails into Mexico and printed for distribution to the people to radicalize them and drive them to action and to help them organize. And although the Mexican Revolution ultimately fell to bourgeois, uh, ultimately fell to bourgeois opportunism, that revolution never would have been possible without the revolutionary and organized strategy that McGon and his supporters endorsed and pushed for. Organizing is the key. Having correct beliefs is not enough. Throwing Molotov cocktails is not enough. You have to organize. Indeed. Well, since we are coming up on about time to draw the podcast to the close, we shall hit some lightning round on a few of these here topics. Um, uh, and a member posted a article about how in California... Um, some Antifa protesters were stabbed at a neo-Nazi rally, um, and then the police charged the stabbies instead of the stabbers. Um, those charges were, um, it looks, I can't tell if they were dropped or if they just declined to prosecute or, or if it's still pending or whatnot, but nobody's actually been prosecuted yet formally for this, but obviously the police are still going after uh, protesters on the left. Please keep this in mind as you're doing your protesting that uh, the the state is not your friend. The state is not going to protect you. Uh, We should all be aware of this by now, but, uh, you know, time and time again, the Nazis get 
uh, preferential treatment. It, it definitely looks like um, a member asks the best about the best way to prepare for when impeachment gets closer. I personally do not think impeachment is ever going to be on the table. Like I, I, I just don't see it uh, when Pelosi is bending over backwards to appease Trump. I, I don't think that's going to be a thing. But even if the House impeaches Trump, the Senate will never convict, so he'll never leave office. He'll just be embarrassed. Um, obviously, the situation's fluid. I guess the only thing I can recommend is you know, uh, you know, if the liberals go out on the streets to protest, take the opportunity, go out there and spread some propaganda and radicalize them, because uh, yeah, if uh, if impeachment is unable to remove Donald Trump, there's definitely going to be a lot of people out there who are willing to reconsider their views about the legitimacy and usefulness of electoral politics and might be willing to uh, consider ideas like direct action. So if that occurs, uh, definitely take advantage of the opportunity. Uh, Member asks, favorite barbecue method, dry rub versus sauce, uh, sauce every day. Both. Uh, I am, I am a... I am a uh, barbecue centrist. Ha, ha. Uh, we have someone uh, looks like... talking about the proposal for uh, a Biden-Romney unity ticket in 2020. <laughs> um, liberal fan fiction is extremely amusing and also gag-inducing. Uh, not a user-submitted question, but something I... I was just reminded of that we absolutely uh, let me see if I can find here ah yes uh, this was posted to the member slack earlier in the day uh, it is a tweet by a twitter individual that I will not name on this platform but the tweet reads as follows why does the left keep attacking successful women of color Joy Reid, Imani, Michelle Obama Hillary Clinton as well as can be considered a black woman, despite being white, since she has fought hard for their rights. That's a sizzling hot take right there. So, we will leave that with no further comment, because it comments on itself all it needs to. Um, looks like Turkey is about to invade northern Syria again to uh, oppress the Kurds, because, you know... Why, why not at this point? It just seems like Erdogan has nothing better to do with his time than launch wars against ethnic groups, I guess. It's just, that, that's just how the world is, I guess. It's, I hope the Kurds slap him silly and make an embarrassment of this, is, is my hope. We have another person um, asking about uh, the unity of leftist thought within the SRA and uh, the political diversity within the SRA. Uh, we have, from the beginning, always been a non-sectarian organization, and we welcome people from all leftist tendencies, and, uh, you know, people who are new to theory and people who've been, you know, part of the left for decades. Um, we recently had a demographic survey, uh, anonymous, um, got some interesting results. In terms of tendencies, we have a very, very even spread you know, uh, we have about the same number of Marxist-Leninists as we do anarcho-communists. You know, we have a lot of uh, a lot of progressives. We have a lot of uh, 
democratic socialists. We have you know fair amounts of like libertarian socialists. Uh, we've got some Maoists and uh, other sorts like that. You know, I definitely think that we've done a good job at uh, discouraging uh, sectarian arguments within the SRA. We are not a party. We do not enforce a particular uh, line in terms of leftist thought. Our goal is to bring together people from all across the left spectrum to uh, develop practical skills uh, and to do practical work. Um, you know, uh, our mission is to arm the working class for self and community defense. And that's a goal that can be shared by just about everyone, um, or at least just about anyone on the left. Obviously, there are those who disagree and think that we should disarm everyone. Those people are wrong. But uh, otherwise, yeah, uh, otherwise, I get along fine with just about people of just about any uh, political tendency. You know, I think that actions count more than words or theory. And uh, I've, you know, I think that's a, a sort of atmosphere that we've cultivated within the SRA as an organization. And I'm, I'm really proud of that. I think, uh, I think we've built a really good space for that. Indeed. Uh, I'd like to close the episode on this question because I think we can talk about it for just a second. But uh, a member asks what socialism would look like to the common human government housing dividends issued annually from a socially owned mines, oil fields, etc. And I think me and Faye definitely have different views on what, you know, post-capitalism socialist world would look like. Uh, in my mind, coming from a syndicalist background, I foresee the one big union, and I see it as the sort of thing that uh, society is structured along that vein, that uh, unions as economic units are are part of the governmental process and how the whatever replaces the state uh, draws from that and i kind of see it from the point of uh after you know you get done with your primary education and your secondary education and you go and do some practical skills testing and you do some aptitude testing and you more or less get a list of jobs that they think you would be good at and you can try out and, you know, do your apprenticeship and poke around. And if something's not for you, then you transfer to a new field and uh, the economy just kind of hums along with that. And every worker is guaranteed the basic necessities of life. And there is no, whether or not a wage system exists in that I'm, I'm, personally still think a wage system would but um i i think that that's the main fundamental that the workers are in charge of their own industries and of their own shops and that there is the ability for workers to move from one industry and one shop to the other um in a much more convenient way than what is un currently under capitalism, where you uh, have to apply to different jobs and fight with different employers. Um, yeah, I think, at least in my picture of things, is that uh, the, the economy just kind of falls in some ways similar to what we see in the current market system, but in many ways very different, that uh, it's basically just that you're guaranteed that you 
have a roof over your head and food to eat and that your family's taken care of. And how exactly that looks is something that can be debated and is a lot. Uh, certainly, this is very different from what a Marxist-Leninist viewpoint would look like, but I think that that's, uh, that's about what it would look like for for something like America, but it could go a few different ways. Well, you know, my perspective, um, you know, coming from a Marxist perspective, I believe that the material conditions of the future depend upon the material conditions of the present. And, you know, um, whatever arises uh, from the chaos of a revolution will depend a great deal on what existed before and also on what form that revolution took. Um, so I don't think that I can predict what socialism would look like, but I can say that as a libertarian communist, uh, I believe that socialism is only worth it if it proves um, liberatory to the individual. Um, I am not satisfied with the liberation of nation states and the uh, acceptance of undemocratic forms of government that some tendencies will endorse. That's not something that I support. I believe that socialism is not worth fighting for unless it is liberatory to the people. Um, as far as the system that I would like to see, um, you know, I can envision a system uh, that contains elements of both syndicalism and uh, social ecology and a sort of uh, democratic confederalism envisioned by Bookchin and uh, others. And I could see that sort of system um, coexisting with a with remnants, uh, successors of the national states that we have today. I think that there are certain things in our society that are best left up to individual and uh, small local democratic control, while there are other things that will require large-scale uh, centralized planning in order to address, particularly climate change. You know, I think that syndicalism and letting people, you know, own, control, and run their own workplaces democratically, you know, in their own interests is a good thing. But I don't believe that that alone will be capable of addressing the issues of climate change. So I believe that, you know, just like the world we have today, the socialist world that hopefully, uh, hopefully arises from this one will be just as messy and just as complicated and have contradictory elements of its own. And those contradictions will eventually uh, climax in another revolution, which replaces that system. You know, that's sort of the Marxist, you know, uh, dialectical worldview. I think that uh, socialism will be a step forward for humanity, but I don't believe that it is the final step. Uh, nor do I believe that the next step will necessarily be the perfect utopian communism envisioned by Marx. Uh, I think that we're a long way from perfecting human society. And uh, I don't think that the road will be easy or clean or neat. I think that uh, it'll really depend on the circumstances um, and the material conditions of the age and uh, how that interacts with the uh, ideology of the people. So that's my perspective. But 
Yeah, I'm I'm fighting for a socialism that is liberatory to the individual as well as to the class. Uh, and uh, personally, I'm suspicious of uh, tendencies that don't take that into account. But I'm also perfectly willing to work with people who I have disagreements with as long as we're fighting uh, for a common cause, which right now I believe everyone on the left should be. So that's my take. Alrighty. Well, with that, we shall conclude the episode, draw this to a close, and bid y'all good night. So as always, I can be found at Humvadev on Twitter. The Faye can be found at LA underscore socialist RA on Twitter as well. Um, and, you know, you can sometimes catch her in action in the field uh, on Reddit, uh, putting up the good fight against uh, the Swedish master race, apparently. Uh, we just just had a fascinating fellow who came into the subreddit and we greeted him warmly as we should as leftists. So, um, yeah, I think, I think that's all, all I have for tonight. So, uh, I'm, I'm going to go to bed now. So time to do that. Solidarity, folks. Solidarity.